Well, once again, good morning. Welcome to week four of Lent. And I'm in a series called Fatal Attractions, How to Break Free of the Seven Deadly Sins. And today, we're going to talk about gluttony. is the big deal about gluttony. If you're like me, you're probably thinking of all the sins, the seven deadly sins, I mean gluttony's got to rank pretty low, right? In fact, it can't even really be a sin. It's things that we laugh about. And yet, did you know that in the fourth century, when the church decided that they were going to give seven deadly sins as a gift to the church, because where all the other sins flow from these seven deadly sins, and they wanted people to work on them as Christians to go, wait a minute, every sin that you and I participate in, you can back it up to one of these seven. Did you know that gluttony was number one on the list? It was considered the number one deadly sin for centuries. Now, pride eventually overcame it. But gluttony was always seen as the gateway to all the other sins. I find that fascinating. I think we struggle with the idea of gluttony because many of us are functional dualists. What do I mean by that? If you're like me, you were raised in a, in, in, in a home that um, more or less talked about spiritual things and secular things. Spiritual things were like God's really, really concerned about your prayer life, your devotional life, church, service, all those things that are spiritual. But then there were secular things that it didn't really seem like the preacher ever talked about or you weren't talked about in church. And that was like food. Like I never remember once growing up ever hearing a sermon on food. Maybe it's because the pastor was a functional dualist and he just thought, well, you know, that's really not that important to talk about. But consider 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. Don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and given to you by God? You do not belong to yourself, for God bought you with a high price. So you must honor God with your body. This verse means that God has stewarded us, our bodies. 
and that it's up to you and I with the help of the Holy Spirit because we're God's temple. The Holy Spirit lives inside of us. It's our responsibility to steward that body that God has given you to the best of your ability. But in America, we are struggling with gluttony. For example, 37% of all Americans are classified as obese and 33% are classified as overweight. So that what that means is seven out of every 10 Americans are overweight, obese, and are struggling with a lot of the illnesses and diseases that are related to being overweight. 17% of all children are obese. The average American consumes 152 pounds of sugar a year. The average teenager consumes 400 pounds of sugar a year. Heart disease, stroke, type 2 diabetes, and certain types of cancer are associated with obesity. Heart disease is now the number one killer in America. And primarily, heart disease is related to being overweight. Among 19 to 30-year-olds, 45% of men, so that's almost half of all men in America, and 27% of all women report heavy drinking in the last two weeks. Now, I'm going to expand this idea of gluttony in just a moment, but if you think that gluttony is only about food, you are mistaken. Because in the Bible specifically, it talks about food and drink. And then so much more. So what does the Bible say about gluttony? It may surprise you. Deuteronomy 21, verses 20 and 21, this is the Mosaic law. So let's just say that we were living in Old Testament times, and you had a son or daughter that was under this category. The parents must say to the elders, if you have this kind of kid, this son of ours is stubborn and rebellious and refuses to obey. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of his town must stone him to death. In this way, you will purge this evil among you. Philippians chapter 3, verses 18 and 19. For, as I have often told you before and now tell you again with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. So in other words, a person whose God is their stomach is really their mind is set on earthly things rather than spiritual things. And then lastly, from Proverbs 23, um, verse 2 and 20 and 21, put a knife to your throat if you are given to gluttony. Do not carouse with drunkards or feast with gluttons for they are on their way to poverty. So I guess the question really should be at least considered, how do you know if you're a glutton? How do I know if I'm a glutton? Is it just about looking at somebody going, ah, they're probably 20 pounds over. Ah, they're probably 50 pounds over. Is, it, is that what gluttony is? Actually, no. But interestingly, thank you. Interestingly, in the Middle Ages, see, everybody thinks that the Middle Ages were all like dark and nobody had any sense of humor in the Middle Ages. In the Middle Ages, the, the, the church came up with an acronym to how to tell if you're a glutton. The acronym is FRESH. F-R-E-S-H. I said that right, right? Okay, here it is. In the Middle Ages, the church had a five-point questionnaire 
about whether you were a glutton. The first is, F is, are you a fastidious eater or drinker? Do you know what the word fastidious means? Persnickety. Ah, oh, that wasn't helpful at all. <laughs> What's persnickety? This is what persnickety is. It's going to a restaurant, sitting down and saying to the waiter or waitress, I'd like to order pasta, please. Do you make your own pasta? I don't, you, you don't... Oh. Okay, can I have capellini? Because I much prefer capellini over spaghetti. Spaghetti just gets, it's so thick, it gets stuck in my throat. I really like the thin pasta. And oh, I'd like some marinara sauce, but don't put too much marinara sauce on it because some restaurants really dump the marinara sauce onto the pasta and it's just too much for me. In fact, can you just put like, like you know what I'm talking about, right? A, a little bit of marinara, but, but not too little, but oh, never mind. Just go ahead and put it in a bowl on the side and I'll put the marinara on. What about the bread? Do you do breadsticks or is it real bread? Do you warm your bread? Because I only like warm bread uh, to drink. So um, I'd like a glass of water, please, no ice, and a few lemon wedges. Oh, wait a minute. Do you wash your lemons? Because I read an article that said that nobody washes their lemons at restaurants. And I, I just want to know, do you wash your lemons? And oh, no, never mind. Just put the lemons on the side and I'll take care of it. The waiter or waitress walks away and goes, oh, man, this is a trouble table. You know that happened in the Middle Ages? Fastidious eaters, people that were so picky, people that were so focused on, I want what I want in this experience, and I expect it. Two, ravenous eater or drinker. This is easy. This is the greedy eater or drinker. This is the person who hides food so that they can keep it for themselves. You know what I'm talking about, right? Your kids are just like vacuum cleaners. And so, you know, you know that there's one or two pieces of cake left, so you make sure that you put the cake in a place where the kids can't get it. Actually, I've done that many times, so I, I don't know. Maybe I'm the ravenous one. I, I don't know. But it's, it's like being at work, and you see that there's only a few pieces of something you really like. So at work, you just make sure you, you take it and you put it in your office to make sure that nobody else gets it. It's the greedy eater. E is the excessive eater. We all know what that is. People just eat too much. S is the sumptuous eater. F-R-E-S. The sumptuous eater. This is the person who eats too much rich food. A person who overcomplicates the meal. A person who eats a lot more meat than what they should, has a lot more gravy or cream sauces than they should, has much more dairy products than what they should. Remember, this is the Middle Ages. This is not today. This is the Middle Ages they talked about. Here, Listen to this. The purpose of Lent in the Middle Ages was to deny yourself of sumptuous foods and go simple and clean during Lent so that when Easter came, you could bring back the meat. Those of you who are Catholic, Fridays, you remember that? That's what all that was about, getting rid of the sumptuous food and going simple and clean. And then H is the hasty eater 
or a drinker. This is the person that stands at the counter and wolfs down a sandwich because they don't have time to sit down and enjoy a meal. Which raises an interesting question. Is gluttony really about food? The answer is sort of no. Actually, gluttony is sort of about food, but actually not really. Deep, I know. <laughs> gluttony is more an attitude that we have about life than it is about food. Food just takes the hit. So what really is gluttony about? It's really about three things. And then I'm going to talk about how to beat those three things. Gluttony is all about excessive, excessive pleasure-seeking. The best word to describe gluttony is excessive. Excessive food, excessive drink, excessive clothes, excessive shoes, excessive entertainment, excessive sex, excessive work, excessive play. Now, there is nothing wrong with any of those things I just said. The problem with the glutton is they don't know when enough is enough. And they have gone from taking those things as gifts and using them to try to fill something inside of them that is lacking. Solomon is the greatest example of excess in the Bible. Second Chronicles chapter 9 and 1 Kings, I've put an amalgamation together of these descriptions of Solomon. Just hang with me, I'm going to read like seven verses. Every year, King Solomon received over 25 tons of gold. 25 tons of gold is 50,000 pounds. Did you know I checked this week and a pound of gold is worth $23,650, which means that every year Solomon received $1,182,500,000. In addition to the taxes paid by the traders and merchants, he did this for every year. The, king of, the kings of Arabia and the governors of the Israelite districts also brought him silver and gold. He had a fleet of ocean-going ships. Every three years, his fleet would return, bringing gold and silver. He also had 4,000 stalls for his chariots and horses and had 12,000 cavalry horses. King Solomon loved many foreign women. The Lord had clearly instructed the people of Israel, you must not marry them because they will turn your hearts away to their gods. Yet Solomon insisted on loving them anyway. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines. And in fact, they did turn his heart away from the Lord. Here's the question that you and I really ought to be asking ourselves. Forget about the word gluttony for a moment. The question that you and I ought to be asking ourselves is, do I know when enough is enough? 
How many more this do I need? How much bigger does that have to be before I'll be happy? That's the question of excessive pleasure. How much gaming is too much? Nothing wrong with gaming, but how much is too much? For those of you who are married, sex, hey, wonderful. How do you know you have a sexual addiction? How would you know? These are important questions to wrestle with. Number two, the second quality of gluttony is immediate gratification. The glutton cannot wait. They need to have it now. Esau is one of the great examples in the Bible of, I must have it now. Genesis chapter 25, again, just like five verses I'm going to read you. One day when his brother Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau arrived home from the wilderness exhausted and hungry. Esau said to Jacob, I'm starved. You ever said that? You ever walked into your house and go, I'm starved. What's for dinner? Are you really starved? You're just hungry. Give me some of that stew. All right, Jacob replied, but trade me your rights as the firstborn son. Look, I'm dying of starvation, said Esau. What good is my birthright to me now? But Jacob said, first, you must swear your birthright is mine. So Jacob swore an oath, thereby selling all of his rights as the firstborn to his brother Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. Jacob ate the meal, then got up and left. And here's, here it is. He showed contempt for his rights as the firstborn. You know what blows my mind about this scripture? I bet you most of you thought Jacob is such a manipulator, taking advantage of the weakness of his brother. No, the Old Testament places this sin on Esau, not Jacob. It was Esau who had to have it now. He wasn't starving to death. He'd just been out all day hunting. And he was hungry. And he thought so little of his birthright that he traded it for some bread and lentil stew. What are some modern day examples of just can't wait? Consumer debt. You know, credit cards. Premarital sex. Not waiting until you're married to be together. Fast food. Going through the drive-thru because it's just too overwhelming to go home and make yourself dinner. Is there anything wrong with debt? Nope. Is there anything wrong with sex in marriage? Nope. It's a gift from God. Is there anything wrong with driving through McDonald's or Burger King or some other place? Nope. But behind it, you have to ask yourself this question. Are there areas of my life in which I just have to have it now and I don't wait? I'm impatient. Number three, gluttony is all about control. It's deciding what will make me happy and what will fill me with satisfaction. Let's just go back to food for a moment. 
Rather than accepting food as the gift of God that it is, we turn to, to food to use it to alter our moods and our emotions. Am I the only one that's ever gone through a really challenging time and at 10 o'clock at night I'm standing in front of the freezer wide open going, do I want chocolate chip ice cream or Rocky Road? We feel empty or lonely or depressed or happy and we turn toward food or something else to enhance or change our moods because we feel like that's just what we have a right to do. Opposite gluttony has to do with eating disorders. We think that gluttony is all about eating too much. Food disorders are trying to control your food intake because you feel out of control in other areas of your life and it's really the only thing you can control. So you starve yourself or you make yourself do other things to purge. Okay, enough of that. How do you beat gluttony? You ready for this? You got to get fat. Right? F-A-T. Get fat. So the first is, now, now remember, so this is not just from Scripture, but it's also from 2,000 years of church history. Because the church has been dealing with gluttony for 2,000 years, and here are their three answers. Fast. Fasting has always been the primary answer to gluttony. Matthew 6, 16 says, Jesus said, so when you fast, don't make it obvious as the hypocrites do, for they try to look miserable and disheveled, so people will admire them for their fasting. The key word here is not fast, it's when. Jesus always assumed as his followers that you and I would regularly fast. And he was referring to fasting from food, but we can take it and kind of genericize it and say, well, what are some things we need to fast from in our culture? Maybe it's fast from gaming, maybe it's fast from cell phones for a while, maybe it's fasting from food, maybe it's fasting from sugar, maybe it's fasting from, you know, uh, a, a soda, maybe it's fasting from rich foods like meat or cheese, whatever. It's, it's just the Bible assumes Listen, the safeguard to gluttony is every once in a while saying no to yourself and abstaining from it for a season for the purpose of resetting you. You know what the big thing is now in weight loss? Intermittent fasting. Purposely not eating for 12 to 18 hours to reset your body. That, wait a minute, that's what Jesus is talking about. It's purposely denying yourself something to reset it, to bring it back into balance. You, you should reset watching TV and go for a week without watching TV. A week? Okay, okay, okay. Take a day. Okay, okay wait. take a half a day. You know what I'm saying? Take some time to stop Netflixing. Not that there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with Netflixing, you know what I'm saying? But take some time to stop and spend a whole day quiet because it will reset you. That's always been the Bible's and the church's way of dealing with gluttony is fasting. 
Second, A, achieve balance. Philippians 4, 5 says, let your moderation be known unto all men. The Greek word for moderation is the ability to be reasonable. And its close cousin is self-control. You beat gluttony by pursuing a balanced life. We recently purchased a washing machine because the washing machine that we purchased two years ago never quite worked right, right out of the gate, and we couldn't understand why. And after three repair people coming, they said, hey, you know, your washing machine, the, the inside a cylinder is bent. How did it get bent? I don't know. It's not like we dance with it or anything. You know what I'm saying? I mean, it was just bent from day one. I don't know, maybe it fell out of the truck and they just put it back in, right? But it was out of warranty, so we had to go buy a new one. I'm taking videos of this washing machine walking. You know what I'm talking about by that? This washing machine was so out of balance that when it would get on its spin cycle, right? And I'm taking videos. Hey, hey, Hallie, look at this. It's coming two feet away from the wall. Really? It was crazy. Well, we had to go get a new washing machine. It's not out of balance anymore. That's what happens when you're out of balance. You find yourself in spaces that you never thought. You feel out of balance. Like things are just not going right. You're not in flow. So you beat gluttony through a balanced life. There are literally hundreds of ways to describe a balanced life. Let me just give you just several. Making sure that you're eating the right foods like fruit and vegetables. Limiting foods that are bad for you like sweets and too much meat. Getting enough exercise, whether it's a daily walk or going to the gym. Getting serious about sleep. We need seven to eight hours of sleep a night. There is this weird pride among type A people that says, I I don't need that many hours of sleep. I can function very well on four and a half hours of sleep. You, You can do that for years, but it'll come back to bite you. Regular visits to the dentist, to the doctor, taking your medication properly. But it's not just about your physical being, it's about relational balance. It's about making sure that you know how to be a friend and to have friends. There's a relational health. You know what's really taken a hit over these last few years with the pandemic is relationships. I see something in our church that I've been watching now for the last seven months or so, and I think it's very beautiful. People who are coming back to church, newer people that have been coming in the past year or two, there is a sweetness in our fellowship that is more sweet than before the pandemic. Not that it wasn't sweet before, but I sense a tenderness. I sense a softness. I sense a receptivity to relationship. I think people are tired of of looking at people in masks. Not that it's not wrong to wear a mask. Right, I'm not saying anything about that. I'm just simply saying that people long to see people's faces. People long to give and receive hugs. 
And there's just this, this sweetness that I'm seeing in our church that has just become more palpable to me. People are, we're looking each other, we're looking at each other in the eyes more than what we ever have before. There's a relational health issue that comes to living a balanced life. It's the community of believers. It's coming together in worship. I get that we have an online campus, and I'm so grateful that you're part of the online campus. But if you're living in another state and you can't come to this campus, you should be connected with other brothers and sisters in Christ in your city or in your state. Because we need the connectedness together. It's about taking care of your emotional health. It's about realizing that it's okay to say, I've experienced trauma. And it's okay for men to say that. And then to deal with that and to be honest and open about it. It's ultimately being connected vitally to the body of Christ. F-A-T. T is trust. Trust Jesus to meet your needs and desires. Matthew 14, 20 says, they all ate as much as they wanted and afterwards the disciples picked up 12 baskets of leftovers. About 5,000 men were fed in addition to all the women and the children. Ultimately, Gluttony issues always come down to trust. Can I trust Jesus to fill my heart that I am currently excessively filling with something else? When we do this, when we will actually trust God to fill the deep places in our heart that we're using other things to fill it with, we will discover the goodness of God like never before. This passage of scripture has always been beautiful to me because it really reveals the grace of God. Not just in Jesus feeding 5,000 men, which really means that the, there was women and children, so the feeding of the 5,000 was really the feeding of the 10 or 12 or 13,000, right? And he did it with a few loaves of bread and a few small fishes. But look at what happened. When the disciples went to pick up the excess they picked up 12 baskets full. How does that happen? It's an outright miracle of Jesus because he's the son of God. But for you and me, this is a powerful signal that if you will trust Jesus to fill your stomach and everything else in your life that you're trying to fill it with something else, you always come out better. I think that there's an I think that there's a hidden sense that we don't want to admit it, but we really feel like God is stingy. That he always gives us exactly what we need. You know, like just enough to get by. And there are moments in our lives in which that really is true, that God has met every single need that we've had. But guess what? God always gives us more than what we need. He gives us the 12 baskets more. Because that's just who he is. Okay, I'm going to take this whole thing of gluttony, I'm going to flip it in the next five minutes. God is the biggest glutton of all. Do you remember the parable of the prodigal son? It's not the parable of the prodigal son. 
It's the parable of the prodigal God. The son isn't even the focus of that story. It's the father who, as the whole scene is being played out, act after act, we watch the son go through his writhing. There's the father the whole time. Standing at the edge of the property, is this the day when the boy returns? And when the boy comes back, the father lavishes him, gives him back his birthright that he does not deserve. Puts the signet ring and the, the, the robe on him, signaling that he's the son that was lost, but now he's found, that was dead and has now come back to life. And the signet ring that he puts on the son is the, in essence, you can do business for the family again. He literally hands him the checkbook. You're back. The word prodigal is the word meaning excessive, extravagant to the point of wastefulness, way beyond the bounds of logic. When Jesus told that parable, all the religious people clucked their tongues and said, no way. That's not right that that father will do that. And Jesus says, this is your heavenly father and he does it for you. Trust. One of the things I really liked about Frank's testimony is that he clearly said that if somebody would have asked him if he was a Christian, he would have said yes. But he really didn't have a relationship with Jesus. Maybe you're here today and you think, well, I'm a Christian. Okay, fine. I'm not trying to talk you out of that. But do you have a relationship with Jesus Christ of any meaning and value. In other words, are you like the kid looking into the candy store going, yeah, that looks really good in there, or are you actually inside having a personal knowledge of Jesus? It all comes back to your decision to trust Christ. You're not born into the family of God. You don't earn your way into the family of God. Well, you know, I'll just write more checks to the church or I'll just make sure I'm serving in the church because I want to show God how sincere I am about my faith. It has nothing to do with that. It has to do with you turning from your own life and making your way back to a father who's been waiting for you saying, come on, come on. It doesn't matter the circumstances that you've been involved in as much as I want you home. The Father wants you home. So if you're here today or part of the online campus, the central question is, are you trusting Jesus Christ as your personal Savior? Have you invited Jesus into your life? And are you walking with Jesus? And I want to give you that opportunity this morning. This message isn't about gluttony. 
It's about trust. Trusting Jesus to fill the deepest parts of you that you've been using other things to try to fill that hole. So here's my invitation. I'm going to make it very clear, but it will require something of you. If you would like to invite Jesus into your life, whether this is your first time here or whether you've been coming for months or even for years, I'm just going to ask you to stand up right where you're at. And I'm going to lead you in a prayer and then I'll close out the the service and the worship team will come back up. I won't ask you to do anything else. But I think it's fair for you to ask, well, why would you want me to stand? I think there's something powerful about making a public commitment to faith in Jesus Christ. Yeah, there's going to be people looking around you going, oh, they're standing. You know what they're really thinking? Thank God they're coming home. Having you stand is not to embarrass you. It's actually to help you to sink your commitment deep down into Jesus Christ. So if you're willing to invite Christ into your life, if you feel this tug on your heart to invite Christ into your life today, just stand right there. I'll lead you in a prayer, and then you can be seated. Just stand up. Yes, 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 yes. Let's bow our heads. This is the prayer. It's very simple. Jesus, I want to come home. You just repeat this prayer after me. Jesus, I want to come home. I've been trusting in other things rather than you. I do confess that I have said things, done things, thought things that I know are displeasing to you. I admit that. They're sins. But I'm turning my back on those things right now. Come into my life. Fill me. And I promise from this moment on, I'm going to do all that I can do. I'm going to be, with your help, all you created me to be. And I'm going to follow you the rest of my life. Help me to figure out what that looks like. I don't know. I'm new at this. But I trust you with my whole life right now. And I want to thank you for coming into my life. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Now listen, if you prayed that prayer, you're standing right now, if you prayed that prayer, in the worship folder is Pastor Ann's contact information. I don't know. It's been a long time since I looked at the worship folder. I probably ought not to admit that. I think my name's in there too. You should email me or you should email Pastor Ann because we want to give you some resources to help you on your way. By the way, starting point begins next week. Starting point is four weeks. That's the process of 
helping you to get grounded in your life in Christ. After that is a four-week class called Going Deeper that will also help you. And then for those who are standing or for those that are in the congregation, those of you who are even online, if you're interested in joining this church and you saw us bring into uh, membership those today, that's the process, starting point, going deeper, and then having a membership class with me. All that's on our website, but I just want to encourage you, congratulations on beginning your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ.